happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hi, listeners. Just a quick tour plug at the top of the episode. If you haven't heard, we are going on tour in early February 2024. And for the most part, Jamie and I are covering Barbie. So step outside your Mojo Dojo Casa House and come see us live. First, we will be in San Francisco for another show at SF Sketchfest. This will be February 1st. Then we're doing two shows in Sacramento on February 2nd. We are doing Barbie plus Wolf of Wall Street because we needed to double up on Margot Robbie movies. So come to one or both of those. Then we are heading to Texas. We are doing a show in Dallas on February 3rd, and then heading to Austin for a show on February 5th. And then we're coming back around to California and doing a show in San Diego on February 10th. More details and tickets are on our link tree. That's linktree slash Bechtelcast. Guess what? These tickets make a great holiday gift for a loved one or for yourself. So grab those tickets. Come see us live. We always do special things at the live shows, so you don't want to miss them. We're so excited for this, and we will see you there. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Caitlin. Will you write to me if someone never separates us? Not if Danny Glover has anything to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a great example of something that doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Yeah, it started out strong, but then I fucked it up. It's okay. I fucked it up. I'm sorry. Better luck next time. That's how I feel every time you're like, well, this is in no way a reference to this movie. But like, sometimes you're like, oh, this movie's going to be about women. And then it isn't. And you're like, well, we'll get them next time. (laughs) Next time, we'll we'll try again. Yeah. I guess the name of the movie was John Tucker Must Die. But I didn't expect that they would only talk about him. Mm -hmm. It was shocking. (laughs) Well, welcome to yes. the Bechtel cast. My name is Jamie Loftus. <laughs> My name is Caitlin Durante, and this is our show where we examine movies through an intersectional feminist lens using the Bechtel test simply as a jumping off point. The Bechtel test is a media metric created by, co-created by, really, 
Alison Bechtel and Liz Wallace. It's known as the Bechtel-Wallace test in some circles. Mm-hmm. And it first appeared in Alison Bechtel's comic, Dykes to Watch Out For, examining how women don't really ever talk to each other in movies. And there are many versions of the test. The one that we observe is this. Two characters of a marginalized gender must have names, they must speak to each other, and their conversation has to be about something other than a man. And ideally, it's a conversation with substance and not just like throwaway dialogue. And that's the test. There it is. And it was also written originally, not even just about women in general talking, but queer women talking. Yes. Which is relevant to the discussion we're going to have today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although it should be more relevant, but I guess we'll talk about that when we get there. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, we have a much requested episode coming out today that we've been sitting on for quite some time. We're covering the 1985 adaptation of The Color Purple, Mm -hmm. directed by Steven Spielberg, based on the novel by Alice Walker, starring Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, Danny Glover, among many other wonderful actors. Mm -hmm. We decided we were going to sit on this episode until the new adaptation came out, which is technically, and I don't know, we could get into like the adaptation wormhole that we're getting to where it's like an adaptation of a book, of a movie, of a Broadway musical, and now it's the movie. It's kind of like a hairspray kind of narrative, weirdly. But that movie was announced five years ago. So we've been waiting for this episode for a long time. As you're listening to it, I believe that The Color Purple, the 2023 musical version comes out this week. So we we have a wonderful returning guest to discuss this film with us. Let's get her in the mix. We do. She's a comedian, host of TV, I Say, and you know her from our episode on Secretary. It's Ashley Ray. Hey. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I am really excited to do this movie. It's a Black classic. It's something Mm. you like grow up watching. So I'm ready. I'm excited. I feel... Not quite as ready just because there is so much like context, like context corner is enormous. Yes. There's lots of production stuff and adaptation stuff. And I was like, I'm going to read the book. <laughs> I'm pumped. I think between the three of us, like we can make this happen. <laughs> we're going to, yeah, we're going to piece this thing together. <laughs> we, we will. No, I'm very excited. So Ashley, what's your relationship with this movie? And with the book too. Yeah, I saw the movie before the book because it came out before I was born. Uh, And in my household, I I think like when you have a black mom, you are just like fed this movie as soon as you're able to understand what a screen is. I can't (laughs) even tell you the first time I watched The Color Purple. I just remember like my mom and aunts like quoting it constantly saying, you know, Hoppo, who is this woman? And, you know, <laughs> repeating the all my life I had to fight. And it's, it's, it becomes like mm-hmm. a family in joke for every black family. And it wasn't probably until middle school that I read the book. I was finally like, oh, I should see what this is all about. <laughs> we were in school, like talking about this sort of anger over Steven Spielberg directing it mm-hmm. and that backlash. So I finally read it and I was like, oh, this is very different. I understand now that I and the movie is is a lot, I think, for a young person to watch. It is still very graphic, even though it is Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. But the book doesn't hold back. The book is just a lot more graphic. And that's when I started to really understand Alice Walker as a writer. And 
then I became one of those people who I, I think anyone kind of has those phases with this movie where you like love it and then you learn more about it. And then you're like, oh, I see the problems. Mm -hmm. And then you come back around to wait a second. This is a brilliant movie that features like some of the best performances from black actors that tells a story that is real and needs to be told. And mm -hmm. it's amazing. And I love it again. So. <laughs> I love love those cycles. Yeah. yeah. Jamie, what's your relationship with it? I had seen this movie, but so long ago that I couldn't speak to specific plot points. I remember seeing mm -hmm. it at school. I think we watched it in maybe history class. I'm not sure where we watched it, but I remember watching this movie in school. I remember scenes. I remember, I mean, I certainly remember the performances stuck with me hard mm -hmm. uh, because everyone in this movie is tremendously famous and talented. And I didn't even realize until I was looking into the the context for this movie that most of these actors were not like mainstream famous when this movie came out. I mean, the casting story is really fascinating. Whoopi Goldberg, I guess stand-ups are stage actors. That counts. Yeah. We count. We're valid. Uh, <laughs> but like, we're, we're people too. <laughs> but most of these actors were successful on stage and hadn't made the jump to on screen. And by the time I saw it, you know, everyone was super famous. And I remember enjoying the movie. I remember being very affected by it. I wish, I think that it is very telling. I think we've talked about this on previous episodes that I did watch the movie in school. I was never encouraged to read the book in school. And I wish I had been. I'll be honest, I have not read the full book. I read passages of it to prepare for this episode, especially around the relationship between Celie and Shug, which is minus the one scene, which we'll talk about is basically absent. And I read a lot of the criticism around not just the choice of Steven Spielberg for a director, but like his choices in the ways that he Spielbergifies oh, yeah. this story. Yeah. Oh, I have so much to say about that. <laughs> I can't <laughs> wait to hear it. So yeah, I, I had not extensive experience, but I'd, I'd seen the movie before. And yeah, I mean, speaking to your point, Caitlin, there's like an infinite amount of analysis and, you know, waves of discourse over the course of the last, you know, 40 plus years available on not just the movie, but also the book and also the Broadway mm -hmm. adaptation and also this new adaptation. And there's just so much to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Caitlin, what's your history? Similarly, fairly minimal. I had seen the movie once before in my phase of like, I'm a freshman in film school and I need to have seen all those important movies. And so I watched it and that was now like <laughs> almost 20 years ago. So uh, a lot of the details were foggy. We don't talk about it. <laughs> I had a, we've never talked about this, but I also went through, I considered going through that phase. And then I watched yeah. Dr. Strangelove. Oh, I yeah. think I watched a Singles Three Stooges movie and I was like, <laughs> I think I get it. Yeah, I, I did a Godfather. I did a Godfather, and I was like, I see. Yes, film I didn't people even get that far. Yeah, <laughs> I love Doctor yeah. Strangelove, and then I was like, all right, that's basically movies, right? And <laughs> that was a good one. Let's quit. While Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating Pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. 
Visit TomboyX.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Or ahead. <laughs> yeah, I saw Citizen Kane and that was enough for me. Yeah. yeah. No, I really put myself through an intensive secondary film school where I was like, <laughs> good for you. This was back in the day where I would have like the three Netflix DVDs at a time. Oh, and yes. I was just like rotating through them rapidly and then i was also going to the library and getting movies on dvd from the library and i would estimate that i watched probably two movies a day two to three movies a day every day for like an entire year oh geez oh my god i did have this phase i got really into film like senior year of high school but i was obsessed with one director which i think is even nerdier and i was uh-huh. like i have to watch every single ingmar bergman film i have to know everything <laughs> about ingmar bergman and i think uh-huh. at one point i had rented like wild strawberries the seventh seal and the virgin spring all at once and then i would like truly go get them from the library too wow and i put myself through that i put myself through that i have seen persona so many times and that's not good for anyone <laughs> it's not good we have yet to cover a bergman film here so oh my god persona return. would be a good one i'm pitching it now persona i one of the women doesn't even talk she can't talk <laughs> oh i'm very down for that someone else recommended that to me recently too and we're like heading into a phase of this show where it's like we have run out of the <laughs> movies in certain areas so we must look back we've done every movie from 1999 and we must branch out <laughs> do you think that was true a lot of 99 a lot of 02 who knows yeah. potent yeah. years but we have to move on good years good yes. years but sorry did, uh, was that the, the history oh yes. yes i watched the movie i didn't remember much about it just because it was such a long time ago and so upon this rewatch i was like especially struck by some tonal choices that were made especially with the score and i'm like why is this the music that's playing during this moment or this scene and i was just like this is no disrespect to mr spielberg and the movie itself but i was like this is some weird like 
and I know that this movie has gotten this criticism already, but like this kind of like sugar coated, like fairy tale esque version of this narrative, and like yeah, and some of these like kind of stylistic and aesthetic choices that are made and just tonal choices and i'm just like hmm i was not quite expecting that or didn't totally remember that no but we'll dive into it further i mean honestly like prior to this i knew the main points about alice walker which is that she wrote this book because she won the pulitzer and i didn't know much else about her and she is also there's a lot going on there as well Mm. Uh, <laughs> which we'll talk about and I, I feel is important to note as we would with anybody. But even just like I was surprised, first of all, how much production information there is available about this movie. Mm-hmm. And also like how I don't mean this, like I don't know, like not a positive or negative thing. I just was surprised at how openly everyone was having the discussion when the movie came out. Because I, I feel yeah. like we're so used to movies from the 80s having it be like 20 years later we started to think but it was like this conversation was oh, was going on it happened immediately because yeah. people were so angry i mean essentially alice walker never really cared about making this into a movie she mm-hmm. heard people wanted to do it she was like yeah i can whip something up here's some different names like the color purple she also suggested one that was the sunset of fabric or something I don't know, but did that one didn't work and People were like, who are you thinking about as a director? Obviously, everyone was like, Spike Lee. It is the 80s. Mm-hmm. Spike Lee. And a friend was like, you heard of this Steven Spielberg? He's like super cool. If you really want people to see this movie, you probably should go with Steven Spielberg. She straight up said, I don't really know much about the guy, but he seems like a big deal. I, I will pick him. I that she seen E.T. And she's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, like, she truly was like, so yeah, yeah, that was bizarre. a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, and, and at the time, Spike Lee was seen as a very political choice. They go with Steven Spielberg and Spike Lee is pissed. He was immediately pissed when this is announced. He starts working with the NAACP before the film is even announced to start a campaign to discredit the film as coming from a white director being a whitewashed version of the story Mm -hmm. uh, and specifically pointing out that it is the narrative is being used by a white man to tear down black men, Mm -hmm. that the film is being so unfair to Mr. and the men in it because a white man is directing. So they do this whole campaign. The Color Purple comes out. It was nominated for an incredible amount of Academy Awards. 11, I think. Yeah. 11. Won nothing. Doesn't win a single one because Mm -hmm. of this Spike Lee campaign. It's such Mm a, it was so like impactful. And everyone saw it, like all the black, you know, magazines, Essence, they were all writing about this. There were all these debates about it before it even came out. So I think that is truly why there was so much discourse behind everything. And even people in the midst of making it knew that they were facing these judgments. So they tried to really document the process of making it and how the Black people who were hired to be in this movie did have a say. And I think that's the only reason that any of that exists today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Interesting. I also read that... The Hollywood Beverly Hills chapter of the NAACP issued a formal complaint against the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Scientists after the movie didn't win any of the 11 awards, Academy Awards that it was nominated for, saying that it was like all those snubs were a blackout, meaning like this is the industry's attempt to you know suppress black projects which does happen all the time and i'm not saying that that had nothing to do with why this movie didn't win as much as it should have it is a complicated where it is also at the same time people weren't you know rushing to celebrate a fully black cast movie 
at that time period. Right. But it's you mm-hmm. also have to know the studios want Spielberg to direct this because they knew that would give it the chance to win something. They mm-hmm. tied it to a white director specifically to kind of get around that. So I think it ends up hurting it like it being both issues mm-hmm. like I think it ended up just kind of stepping on its own feet by going we got to have a white guy if we're gonna get any sort of attention and then obviously black directors were like why do you have to do that we're also gonna be unhappy and then no one's happy mm-hmm. right <laughs> right except for us the audience because I mean we got a treat <laughs> of a film so. <laughs> <laughs> the premiere of the movie was protested by I think that same chapter of the NAACP because of its depiction of rape which again is like a very I think valid thing to discuss and then there's so many perspectives on this movie I also watched a clip from Whoopi Goldberg two years ago in which she was discussing how frustrating it was to be starring in this film and have this be your breakout and feel like there were people in her own community that were like trying to sabotage this movie Mm. and it's just like yeah, that also makes total sense. Yeah. Right. And she also had Alice Walker herself trying to just, like, she just didn't really care for it. She was kind of like, it was fine. And then every few years she'd be like, actually, guys, just not really a great movie. Really not happy with how they did it. <laughs> yeah. And one of her big issues was how they treated the character of Mr. Uh, in the book. Right. He is more layered. He has more dimensions. He is more like a grandfather figure at times. Not that you ever truly feel sympathy for him, but there are more layers there, moments of kindness. That's totally gone in a Spielberg film because he needs the big bad, the villain, until he has Mm -hmm. like his moment of redemption. So I can understand that. And obviously that criticism fed into these complaints from black male groups who are like, see, it's just made to make us look bad. (sighs) But you you just can't win here. (laughs) Yeah, it's... (laughs) It's, Unbelievably, yeah. just a Shrekian number of onion layers going on <laughs> yeah. with this discussion. Because uh-huh. it's there. like, at the same time, am I mad that this is a Hollywood movie that did a twist and made a man one-dimensional? Psh, not really. <laughs> it's not his story. <laughs> right. I mean, I think it, it seems like a really strong example of like what an impossible position black creatives are put in in this time in particular but also still where like you're saying Ashley it's like well let's get the prestige white director which I'm sure helps with your budget it helps with your marketing it helps with your chance at awards and you know Steven Spielberg is this proven star making director so it's like okay then Alice Walker spoke to this pretty openly of of she was essentially convinced that like the best way to have a successful movie with an all black cast is to work from within the system and she became amenable yeah. to that but then like mm-hmm. you're saying Ashley that's like there's a tremendous amount of backlash that comes with that there's choices that feel dissonant and bizarre oh yeah <laughs> I mean the way that as Mister is presented in the movie combined with the weird last 10 minutes like was he that bad you're like yes yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> He yeah. Was pretty bad. Yeah, the only good side is that he doesn't bother them. Like he sets up this reunion and just gets kind of like, I'm gonna I'm gonna just stay over here, enjoy what I did, not come over and tell you I did it. And it's like, okay, that's the one redeeming thing, but I still wish she'd sliced your throat. Like we could have <laughs> right. in the scene where she's teaching her how to spell, uh Nettie is teaching Celie how to spell, I was like, I teach her how to spell poison, girl. <laughs> teach her how to spell poison, teach her how to spell shovel, get her in the ground. <laughs> get him in the ground, please. Like, I also at the end I was like 
I don't care how close they still live to each other. I don't <laughs> like how nearby True. he is. Don't like that they're neighbors. And yeah. Not not a fan of that. Uh, <sighs> just like this whole time, she's just been living next to her weird ass stepdad who assaulted her. And okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like, he disappears for so long. Yeah. You, by the time she goes to the funeral, you forget his relation to them. You're like, who is this? Right. Is this Mr. Yeah. I truly, I was like, who is this man? Yeah. Cause I mean, in the aging makeup in this movie is all over the place where sometimes oh, yeah. you're like, how old is everybody? And everyone seems to be, there's, there are scenes in this movie. And again, I really enjoy the movie. It's a beautiful movie. There are scenes where there's everyone at the table. You're like, I have no idea. I have no idea. Everyone's a different age. Yeah. There are children and adults that I'm like, who are these people? Are they oh, the yeah. grown up children of the who? And who is this little kid? And I never knew who anyone was unless they were like one of the core cast. Yeah. <laughs> like this whole half second half of the movie, Oprah's character, Sophia, looks older than Seely. And it's kind of like Whoopi Goldberg was like, yeah. I just don't want to do aging makeup. Like, just not me. I'm not doing the aging makeup. <laughs> Everybody like, else can do it. She's like, big role. Like, yeah. sorry. <laughs> I'm not doing it. But <laughs> she looks the same. Like, they show her yeah. when she hits, like, 18, 19. She looks the same for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And everyone else has, like, at least, like, gray spray paint in their hair. But, <laughs> right. you know, it, it's a choice. It's still, again, a great movie. <laughs> I under yeah. yeah, I was like I understand that like different characters are living different like it makes sense that they would look older. But yeah, in a few scenes I was like, huh. <laughs> but there's so much to talk about with this movie that we should probably just start talking about what happens. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for the recap. And we're back. Okay, so I'll just place a trigger warning here for such things as rape, incest, child sexual abuse, domestic abuse. A lot of heavy stuff happens in this story. Okay, so we open. It's the early 1900s in rural Georgia. We meet two sisters, Seely and Nettie who have a very close and loving relationship. We learn that their father is sexually abusing Celie, who is the elder sister. She's 14 years old. Celie is pregnant. She gives birth to a baby who she names Olivia, but her father takes the baby away immediately, which is the second time he has done this. The sister's Mother dies shortly thereafter. Their father remarries a young girl about Celie's age. And then another man, Albert, also known as Mr., played by Danny Glover, approaches Celie and Nettie's father, wanting to marry Nettie. And their father's like, you can't have Nettie, but you can have Celie. So Albert takes Celie home he wants her to care for his three children and to cook and clean. And he is incredibly ungrateful and controlling and abusive. One day, Celie sees a woman carrying a baby through town. And she just has this kind of gut feeling that it's her baby, Olivia, that her father took away from her. And she talks to the woman. She holds the baby who 
this woman says, oh, I nicknamed her Olivia. And so it's like, hmm, that's the name that she gave to her baby. Oh, that scene is brutal. Yeah. It's tough. And it's all she comes with a really dumb lie because obviously uh, Celia is like, that's a, why would you just randomly call your child Olivia when her, what? That's yeah, yeah, not a nickname. <laughs> and she's like, well, look at her eyes. Only an old person would have eyes like that. So I call her Olivia. And I'm like, but that's not, that's, that doesn't connect. <laughs> Don't see the logic there. What does she think Olivia is? Does she think it's short for old Olivia? Yeah, or, yeah like old <laughs> Ivy. Like old what? Old, old lady eyes? What? I don't, but it's sure. Old, yeah. Olivia, old lady eyes. That would be, um, <laughs> I would really respect that if she was committing to that opinion <laughs> yeah you know olivia old lady eyes it makes sense to me makes anyways to bye me. bye <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, okay so then Nettie comes to stay with Celie because their father was trying to sexually abuse Nettie as well so she ran away to be with Celie Celie doesn't want to stay in the situation she's in. You know, this is a prison for her living there with Mr. So Nettie vows to go to school and to learn to read and write so that she can teach Celie so that they can run away together and be educated and be able to like make it on their own. Right. It's not explicitly said, but it's like once Celie is given to Mr. her education. Oh, stop. Stops. Yeah. Yeah. She's not going to school. She's truly there to deal with his horrible kids. They're horrible yes. kids. It's not rude mm-hmm. to say they're horrible children. <laughs> uh, as soon as she gets to the house, Harpo, the oldest son, throws a rock at her head. Yeah. Uh, which causes her to bleed. And uh, in the book, she like has headaches throughout like her life and stuff from it. But oh. in the movie, they're just like, these kids suck, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. I also like that Celie, that's like the first person that you hear her say anything like truly profoundly negative about. She's like, also... This kid sucks. I yeah. can't These kids are rotten. Yeah, she won't talk about anyone else. She's very just timid. But when it comes to the kids, she's like, no, they are the devil. I hate them. <laughs> Even Nettie's like, you got to show them who's boss. And she's just like, no, they suck. There's no hope for these kids. They're too horrible. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so one day, Albert attempts to rape Nettie when she's on her way to school. But she is able to fight him off and get away. And then this causes Albert to, like, kick Nettie out of his house. Celie is devastated. She calls out after Nettie to write to her. And Nettie says, nothing but death could keep me from it. Yeah. Not long after that, some mail arrives. And Celie's hoping she's getting a letter from Nettie. Albert is also excited because he's expecting a letter from someone named Shug Avery, an old girlfriend of his. And we're like, shug, 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 shug. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're cheering. And Mr. Slash Albert tells Celie to never open the mailbox. He like intercepts all the mail that comes yeah. in. So if she was ever receiving mail from Nettie, Celie has no way of knowing because he's taking all the mail. Yeah, and he tells her he's figured out a way to mess with the mailbox, so if she touches it, he'll be able to tell. Mm-hmm. It's just one of the other ways he manipulates her into just staying captive on this farm, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. We cut to seven years later. It's now 1916. Celie is now Whoopi Goldberg, and she's still in this house with Mr., who is still a piece of shit. 
he's getting ready to see Suge Avery, who's coming to town. And in all this time, it seems like Nettie has never written to Celie, and she worries that Nettie might have died because she says nothing but death could keep me from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr. Son Harpo, played by Willard E. Pugh, is in love with a girl named Sophia, played by Oprah Winfrey. She is pregnant, and they're about to get married, but Mr. approves of Sophia because she is, like, headstrong, and he's like, I don't trust her. So she's yeah. like, well, fuck you then. <laughs> I'll just be over here. Basically calls her, like, is he slut shames her, and is like, we oh, don't yeah. even know that Harpo's the dad. And Sophie basically, like, is, sees what, how he's treating Celie and is like, I don't need to be a part of this family. When you get yeah. it together, you come find me. You come to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to some time later when she and Harpo are getting married and they have a baby together. And Sophia, again, does not put up with anyone's bullshit. And Harpo is like, Silly, what should I do about Sophia? She's too headstrong. Her personality. (laughs) She has a personality and I don't like that. I don't like that. How do I get her to be like you? Just totally silent, giving me, you know, shaves, doing my laundry. How do I do that? Yeah. Yeah. And Silly, because all she knows is abuse, she suggests that Harpo beat Sophia, which he does. Sophia clearly fights back. And then Sophia confronts Celie about it, being like, how dare you suggest he hit me? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. I think in like, that's one of the most iconic. It's the most iconic line monologue, maybe in its top five in all movie history. Yeah. Delivered by Oprah. Just Oprah, too. All my life, I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy, my mother, my siblings. And I'll be damned if I thought I was going to have to fight in my own house. It's mm-hmm. it's incredible. I'm sure Iconic. every at black listener has heard their mother deliver this. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about this like later in the episode too, but the continuity, I mean, and also like Oprah's personal connection to this book. Oprah, I think, has been involved in every single major adaptation of this book. She's also a producer on the Broadway musical. I believe she's also a top ranked producer on the new movie, like mm-hmm. Yeah. She's a real Alice Walker stan. She's yeah. super into her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she brings it. I mean, I I truly believe this is one of her best performances. Sophie's one of my favorite characters in it. Yeah, same. Yeah, her whole arc is absolutely beautiful. And it's set up here. I, I think before this moment, you kind of think she's, you know, just going to be another adversary to Celie. You don't really think they're going to end up being supportive of each other. But this moment mm-hmm. of honesty ends up bringing them closer together. So Yeah, yeah, true. So there's this confrontation and this cycle of abuse between Harpo and Sophia goes on for a while until one day Sophia takes all of her children and leaves Harpo. Some more time passes. One night, Albert slash Mr. comes home with Suge Avery, played by Margaret Avery. This is the first time we're seeing her on screen. She is sick. She's drunk we're not really sure exactly what all is going on with her but she's belligerent she just has early 1900s disease she's just very (laughs) flushed and sweaty and is just talking weird and you're like okay i get dissentia dissentia i don't even know what to say it (laughs) she's in she's definitely in the bath Uh and we're like 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm like typhoid fever. She has something, but she's very just like sweaty. And you're like, oh yeah, she's ill. She's ill for sure. According to Mister's father, she has that nasty woman's disease, quote unquote. And you're like, and we're like, uh-huh. <laughs> been there. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, we but, yeah. all have had the nasty that nasty disease. woman's disease. <laughs> Went to a room and sat in a bathtub for a couple of weeks, and then I was right as rain. Was good to go. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yes. Okay. So Mr. insists on making Suge a meal, but he has no idea what he's doing in the kitchen. And Suge is like, what the fuck is this? This is disgusting. She throws it against the wall. And then Seely makes a delicious meal and Suge likes it. And this is the beginning of their friendship. Yes. Uh, Now it's the summer of 1922. Harpo and his friend Swain, played by Lawrence Fishburne, are building a juke joint. They open it up. Suge performs at it as like a singer and dancer. Um, one night, Celie, Albert, Harpo are all there. And then Sophia shows up with her new boyfriend. Uh, Harpo, meanwhile, is with a woman named Squeaky. Squeaky. <laughs> uh, we will find out her real name is Mary Agnes later on. That's one of those very Spielberg moments of the film where it's like this very serious thing. And then there's just a running joke where it's like, Squeaky, your name. I thought your name was Squeaky. Squeaky, Mary, what? And it's like, do we need this? And you're just yeah. like, I need this beat. Mr. Spielberg, can I have a word? Yeah. And it's like also the actress playing that her voice is I, I need to hear the notes Stephen gave her because you can hear him going. Can you go higher? Can you go squeakier? Can you be squeakier? More squeak? And you're just like... <laughs> Her line delivery in this scene, she confronts Harpo, who has started dancing with Sophia, and mm-hmm. she's like, oh, "You, she left you. You're my man now." And then she starts with Harpo, who's this woman? And it's <laughs> this is such it's an annoying squeaky. squeaky. I repeat it all the time. Anytime <laughs> I'm shocked by anything, I say Harpo, who's this woman? <laughs> so iconic, but at the uh-huh. same time, one of those characters where I'm like, oh, Steven Spielberg really was just like, I think we can get some comedy in here. Let's do it. Let's do it. It felt the same sort of thing with Mr.'s father, where he was sort of this like, he is kind of like patriarchy, the man character, mm-hmm. but he's also like, you're supposed to kind of be like, he's kind of a goofball. You're yeah. like, eh? <laughs> especially in the final scene that he's in, in the like dinner scene where Whoopi Goldberg gives this amazing monologue basically being like, mister, you're the worst person on earth and I curse you and I'm gonna maybe try to kill you, but then I won't. But he's like, he's being such a cartoon, ca- so many yeah. characters. He's just in a different movie in that scene. It's <laughs> yeah, bizarre. he's yeah. in a totally, and yeah. his lines are just like, oh, uh, Mary, what? What's her name? Or any, yeah. And he's just like throwing lines or he's like, the chickens all running the hen house. This place is crazy in here. And you're like, <laughs> and you're just like maybe she not- can sweep the caboose of the train. Dude, <laughs> this woman has a knife to your son's throat. Get a little serious. <laughs> Let's get serious. Yeah, his reaction, he's just like, wow, what an interesting Wednesday. His final scene is uh, so after this, Celie's left and he walks into his son's house and there's animals everywhere. His son is just laying on the floor looking dead. And he's not like, my son might be dead. Oh no. He just like pokes him with his cane and is like, I guess you've been drinking. (laughs) Right. It's like, oh no. Squeak. Yeah, I I agree that like the performance she's giving feels sort of like another movie and I'm sure was requested, (laughs) which is frustrating. And also she is far more present in the book than yeah. 
she is mm. in the movie and clearly like the screenplay scales down her presence in the story pretty considerably but also like they leave in in that same dinner scene that squeak is like i want to leave yeah. with shogun seely and everyone's like oh okay. great and then she doesn't <laughs> oh i thought she does go with them is she in the car like I thought she don't... was she's in the car there's no like she t- she does go sing she does leave she does leave because then Harpo and Sophia get back together. Okay. So, like, it's implied she goes and does have fame, but, like, doesn't mm. come back. But then it's all just kind of thrown in there very last minute for her. <laughs> right. So it feels right. like an afterthought, like, oh, I guess she wanted to do that, too. Okay, whatever. Who cares if she goes or doesn't come back? Yeah. yeah. And we're like, right. who is she again? <laughs> like, why don't we know more about her? Yeah, like, why are we supposed mm. to care about her? Okay. Right. Uh <laughs> In the book, she also has like a more prominent role in like negotiating Sophia's prison sentence. Like there's other things that she does that seem more active and like really put her in the story as an important character that it just felt like at some point in the production, they were like, well, we don't really have space to include Squeak's full (laughs) story. And I also think when you get Oprah Winfrey in a role, you know, you got to kind of just... Focus on one of Harpo's love stories. I'm not going with Squeaky, okay? I, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. It's true. I mean, yeah, given the choice. But I'm like, but why is it a choice? <sighs> yeah, yeah. I know. And then why does Sophia get back together with Harpo? <sighs> He's not a good partner. Anyway, yeah. so we're, <laughs> we're in this juke joint. And Squeaky sees Harpo dancing with Sophia. And she gets jealous. And she slaps Sophia. And then this big bar brawl breaks out afterward Shug and Celia are like just kind of hanging out one-on-one they're bonding Shug has Celia try on her dress she encourages Celia to smile because Celia always hides her smile because her father had told her that she had the ugliest smile ever um and then Shug says that she's planning to head out of town and Celie doesn't want her to leave and she says that you know Mr. beats me when you're not here because I'm not you he beats me for not being you and then Celie and Shug share a tender kiss yeah on the lips and that's all and that's, and that's it, it. Steven Spielberg was like, and that's enough of that. And yeah, this is not Lilith fair. Stop it, ladies, (laughs) is what he said behind the camera. And they backed away. The book is gay. Like The book is so, so gay. They're so gay. And the movie, you're just like, what is that? What is this kiss? What what is is this just like, do they think this is what black ladies do to each other? What? What is this? It's so barely there that I completely forgot that that was a component of the movie until I rewatched it. That's fine. I remember that scene very clearly <laughs> from what I saw in school. But I was surprised watching back. I was like, honestly, in 1985, I'm surprised that much was done. True. Yeah. Which is saying nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I, again, I was like pleasantly surprised, I guess, that at very, very least, Spielberg has come out and said that he regrets pulling back i mean which is easy to say in retrospect but yeah now that everybody loves gay people i'm sure you would have loved to make it gayer (laughs) yeah he's he's a man of the people he's like oh uh this is cool now i would have done that i should have done that 
Yeah. And I should have. I am yeah. sorry. Well, coulda, shoulda, woulda, Mr. Steve. Well, got his ass. Got his yeah. ass. Got him. Got him. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, I feel like if you haven't read the book, that scene probably just feels very out of place. And mm-hmm. I guess it does help to give you an idea that Celie isn't like addressing Shug with anger when she could. She could be jealous or upset that this woman is her husband's mistress. And it just really shows you how little she cares about Mr., how much she just like feels that she's forced to be in this house and stuff. Yeah. But you know what it would be great as? A scene where they are gay. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which that is like one aspect of Celie's character that I love. So like it makes total sense given her personal history where she is never going to be turned against a woman yeah, because she has no she's been given absolutely sub-zero reasons in her life to trust men so why would she allow you know even that attempt at manipulation will never ever work on her and doesn't and doesn't work on really any of the women in this story they're like nice try yeah we're gonna take Celie with us I mean that happens with Suga a number of times too where Albert tries to turn her you know tries to pit women against each other in a way that sometimes in real life more often in popular movies is always successful yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it doesn't fly here yeah he thinks he can say like oh Nettie you're so much prettier you're so much prettier. I love how you wear that dress Nettie and instead Nettie just goes to Celie and is like isn't he so stupid when he says all that stuff when he's like <laughs> right. saying my teeth are pretty what a loser <laughs> yeah what a disgusting <laughs> monster and even their father you know, he gets remarried and has this opportunity to like leave everything to his new wife. And it seems like she could just run away with this house and all the land. But she's like, I got the money. Like you guys have the, have your stuff back. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't need to turn against other women. And yeah. Celie's like, let's shake girl. I love this. Yeah. It's just, yeah. She's so good in that respect. And, mm-hmm. but you know, maybe it's cause she's a little gay and maybe we should explore <laughs> that Steven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe there's some more context there. Ever think about that, Mr. Steve? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to call Steven Spielberg Mr. Steve. <laughs> Steve. Okay, so Silly packs up her things, hoping to go with Suge to Memphis and escape Mr. But he catches Silly and she can't escape. She remains trapped there. Mm-hmm. We see a scene where Suge tries to connect with her father, who she had mentioned she has a difficult, if not estranged, relationship with him. He is a pastor who is very ashamed of her. He thinks that she's a sinner, and her attempt to reconnect does not work. Yeah. She did have nasty woman's disease. She Well, yes. and that's why he doesn't want anything to do with her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then we meet this white woman named Miss Millie, played by Dana Ivey. She is the mayor's wife, and she, I'm excited to talk about her because there's a lot of stuff going on with Miss Millie, but she asks Sophia to be her maid, and Sophia is like, hell no, (laughs) and I quote, and then the mayor slaps Sophia, so she punches him, and then all the white people around gang up on her, and Sophia is then brutalized by the police, and then arrested and put in jail for many years. We cut to 1930. Sophia is released from jail and now has no choice but to work for Miss Millie, being her maid. She is completely dejected and broken 
a shell of the person she once was. Mm -hmm. She hasn't seen her children in eight years. There's a scene where Celie helps her out at the market. It seems like Sophia cannot read or can't read well. So Celie discreetly helps her with a shopping list in Mm -hmm. uh, what I thought was a really wonderful moment. Sometime later, Suge and her new husband come to visit Celie and Albert. And while the men are talking, Suge goes to get the mail. And if you want to know what they're talking about, it's how they both slept with Suge. That's that's the whole conversation. That you had a your way and I had a my way, but we both had a let's have a drink to have her. And are they smashing raw eggs on their heads? Yes, uh, it's it's Easter, so the kids and then they're all painting Easter eggs, and then they just get so drunk they just start smashing the eggs on their heads and just being like, we slept with the same lady. Life is great. So actually, I am going off of synopsis versus, but it seems like to me in the book that the movie pushes her getting remarried ahead in the story so that like she comes back with a husband like i think that she has a husband towards the end of the book and all of the queer subplot is removed from the movie yeah that celie is devastated that shug has gotten remarried and that's like a huge thing but instead they cut the love story between Suge and yeah. Celie and add the husband way earlier for reasons way I didn't earlier, quite understand. Which, and it doesn't make sense. And Celie doesn't seem to really care mind that Suge got married. And yeah. Mr. more importantly, is like so great about it. He's like, I love this guy. This is so cool. <laughs> I lost my mistress, but I've gained a friend. And <laughs> right. I, no real reason for why Mr. as we have seen him up until this point in the movie would react that way. Right. Uh, but sure. Sure. She like, yeah, they, it just kind of happens and they move on. That's the husband. We don't also know anything about him. <laughs> Which is like, you know, yeah. it's this is not a movie about men. But it, yeah, that was like another character that it was like, he changes kind of from scene to scene because he's like, best buds with mister but then when he's also like integral and taking celia away there's no acknowledgement that they were ever friends (laughs) like it's just confusing and it's also yeah it's very like why this guy like the most of it seems like so much of shook stories about her freedom wanting to prove herself to her dad Mm -hmm. and so why marry this guy and it does seem like she just gets married to make her father happy, maybe. There's a whole scene where she is standing uh, on the road with her ring with another very famous line from the movie. Mm-hmm. I's married now! <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is what my sister said when she got married. Uh, and <laughs> I, like my mom says it all the time. Look, Paul, pa, I's married now! I's married now! And the dad doesn't care. He's like, you're still yeah. a harlot and a whore like, and just Ooh. keeps going. <laughs> God, so cool. talk about someone who did not earn his amazing daughter back in his life Mm-mm. no no it, but and it's just i wish we had explored why suge decides to give up the, her freedom for this guy but maybe it's just because he has a nice really cool yellow car good enough for me yeah could be that i was also confounded by that just like i was confounded by why sophia gets back together with harpo I mean, and also it's like that doesn't necessarily mean that like, I mean, I think it's confusing because in a Spielberg movie, everything seems like and all is as it should be. And so yeah. that undercurrent, I feel like 
very likely undercuts I would guess that Alice Walker portrayed that in a more nuanced way of like yeah I don't love that they got back together but it's not inconceivable that at this point in history they would yeah fair or something like that but Spielberg movies are not really at least at this time not (laughs) capable of that level of nuance yeah I would say Sophia's story definitely has more complexity in the book and the movie by the time there's a whole thing with Miss Millie where she like barely ever gets to really see her family because Miss Millie's so horrible. And finally, when she is like having dinner with the family and it's kind of clear she's like back around more, it's because she's has like dementia or something. She just like rocks back and forth. She says she's like confused all the time mm-hmm. and it's clear like they had no more use for her. So she finally like can go home and then she just like ran, like just becomes herself again when Squeaky starts laughing at Harpo. And Harpo says, one of my favorite lines from the movie, it's bad luck to laugh at a man. You're just like, <laughs> it's bad luck for a woman to laugh at a man. And Sophia just busts out laughing. She's like, I've had enough bad luck to laugh at a man the rest of my life then. And then she, she and then she literally says, Sophia's back. Sophia's back home. Like, oh, Sophia is back. And that's how Spielberg does it is like that one line magically makes her wake up again. Yeah. Uh, and in the book, it's more like she sees uh, Celie have her freedom. She sees like this forgiveness that's able to happen. She realizes, you know, Harpo is the product of this long line of like horrible evil men but at the same time he is trying to change that and his character also has way more that happens with like the juke joint and him like stepping up and apologizing about like squeaky and stuff so it Mm. makes sense but for spielberg it's just but if they're holding each other in a field that's all you need that's all you need (laughs) i thought that when sophia was like i'm back i'm back and she does seem to revert back to her kind of old self or like, you know, very outspoken. And so I thought that was going to lead to her being like, and I'm going with you too. Shug, Seely, I'm hitching a ride and I'm getting the hell out of here also. But instead she's like, "Mm, hey, Harpo. And I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense. She's like, I'm back and I'm ready to get back to work at the juke joint. (laughs) Let me pick up a shift. And yeah. (laughs) Thank you for that context because that arc was very confusing to me. And I mean, again, it's like I'm not necessarily complaining that this movie doesn't give me like more information about the men necessarily. But I also I feel like there's a at least in the movie it dropped threads between examining. I mean, you're given like three generations of men under the same roof mm-hmm. in a way that like it's implied that their behavior is connected and learned. But like you don't really quite get yeah. into it. And honestly, like at first, it took me a while. I had to keep reminding myself that Harpo was Albert's son Son, because they look the same age. Yeah, the whole second half of the movie, they look the same age. Uh, They just kind of like said, just put the same aging makeup on everybody. We'll figure it out. (laughs) Who even knows how old black people are anyway is what I think Steven Spielberg said behind the camera. I would guess Uh that he was just like, go for it. Like, yeah, who knows? I don't know. Every black person could be 30 years old to me. Who cares? Yeah. He's like, I've heard the expression black don't crack. So, so, um... you know, do your thing with the makeup, I guess. Maybe. (laughs) But at the end of the movie, like, I think the worst are Harpo, who suddenly looks like he's the grandfather. Nettie, who looks the exact same she did when she left. Nettie comes back and you're like, is she still 15? Like, she looks incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I felt bad for Celia. I was like, I mean, Celia certainly had a very difficult life, but I'm like, this feels aggressive. (laughs) So it's like, Uh. she's just truly like a baby face, looks the same age as Celia's children. (laughs) 
I was like, what was their age gap at the beginning if she looks 22? Yeah. It's confusing. (laughs) I did appreciate there is a small role played by a formative childhood crush of mine. Carl Anderson is in this movie. (laughs) I love Carl Anderson so much. What character does he play? He plays Reverend Samuel. Like he plays the new uh-huh. adoptive father. He barely. In oh it. yeah, yeah. He's barely okay <laughs> in it for like zero seconds. But I was immediately like, oh, because he played uh, Judas and JC Superstar and really changed my life. Oh, and yeah. I had this like experience when I was a kid where I was like, I loved JC Superstar and I loved him so much. He had like. He was just amazing. And then I found out that it was like my first time understanding that not all movies were made this year because my mom was like, look, it's Carl Anderson. I was like, why is he old? I'm furious. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Also a bigger character in the book. Like he ends up uh, uh, marrying Nettie, which I guess is kind of implied in the movie because there's like old man there. He's there. So (laughs) and you're like, I guess that's okay. Sure. (laughs) Hmm. Again, I'm like, I'm not complaining about it, but I I am complaining about or intend to complain about how much more you find out. This was like one of the sections of the book that I did read is Nettie's full story that came in through those letters, which is like really like, I mean, changed and also like alternatively changed or glossed over as it's presented in the movie. But it's like Mm -hmm. a far more nuanced, like much longer story. Oh, yeah. In the book. In the book, yeah. it's like, oh, yes, there's a full narrative. It just, like, goes over the full course of uh, Nettie's life, how she ends up in this situation. She ends up becoming, when Mr. kicks her out, she ends up becoming, like, a maid to the pastor and his wife who took Celie's children. Mm-hmm. And somehow Nettie just kind of knows. She's like, I feel like these are my niece and nephew. Like, I feel it. I'm going to join this mm-hmm. family. They go do mission work in Africa. She goes with them. And we see, like, the whole time his wife is starting to suspect, like, did you cheat on me with Nettie and have our kids? There's a whole arc there of, like, potential, Mm. like, her not trusting her and then, like, slowly building a friendship when she reveals, like, no, I'm the aunt. I've known, I think, all this time. Uh, She ends up, like, marrying the pastor, Samuel. It's a whole deep thing. Her kids, or I guess Celie's kids, Adam marries, and there's an in-depth thing into this woman he marries who we see at the end, but in the books they do the facial scarring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They do the facial scarring with their wedding. And there's also uh, genital mutilation and it's supposed Mm -hmm. to just be for the bride, but Adam does it with her in order to like, you know, have solidarity. He's like, I will also do the facial scarring in the movie. Obviously Steven Spielberg was like, I cannot have, a, a, a genital media. Beautiful. He's like, oh my goodness, no. So instead, we're going to have it be done to Celie's children. And instead of it being a marriage genital mutilation thing, it's like a coming of age facial scarring ceremony that we like see played over drums while Celie is possibly going to cut Mr.'s throat while she's yeah. shaving him. That, so oh, and like, they just change it completely. And it's kind of like, why even keep it? Like, why did we need this? Right. That editing choice too to like didn't yeah. didn't work for me. This mm. is one of the Spielberg moments where I'm like, I think a black director would have been like, hey, it feels a bit here like we are suggesting this African tribe is savage 
evil for mm-hmm. doing this. And we're presenting Celia in a moment where she may do a savage thing of killing someone and Suge stops her at the last minute. Like we're kind of saying they're more, you know, less savage or more human or emotional than these people in Africa, but this is Spielberg, so he doesn't get it. He's just like, yeah, yeah but the drums match up, right? Isn't that <laughs> cool? And knives. then, and when Mister's like, when she tells Mister to put her head back, the kids put their back head back so they can get cut. <laughs> Isn't that a cool cut? Mm-hmm. And right. it's just one of those things tonally where it's a little like, Stephen, why did you do Africa this way? What are you? Why? <laughs> why? Truly. And then why when Adam and. Olivia, Celie's kids, who I think for the first part of their lives lived in the U.S. and then also were living in an English-speaking home their entire life. Why do they not speak English? Why do they not speak English? Yes, this is, (laughs) and what I think it kind of says is Nettie is a horrible teacher. Uh, (laughs) She taught taught Celie how to read and stuff, and then suddenly she never teaches her own niece and nephew how to speak English. Also, at one point, Celie says, like, my kids are in Africa learning different languages. And I was like, they didn't pick up English, though? Like, what? (laughs) What was the first Even though they're parents and their, like, nanny aunt would have been speaking English. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. it's one of those other moments, yeah, where it's like, Spielberg, were you just like, Africa so let's you know they gotta say Swahili or something right and it's Mm -hmm. like that's not how that would work (laughs) and that's a whole part of the book is them navigating Africa as African Americans and the differences they face and how they're treated and some people treat them like they're British or some people treat you know Mm -hmm. and he just you can tell he was like I can't handle this he was like don't don't no 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 I no no thank you I can't uh no how about we just have their African village get pillaged they cut someone we're done. <laughs> yeah. Right. We're in, in the book. There's like a whole process of, I mean, again, I feel like it also has to do with like how missionary work is presented where in the Spielberg movie, it's like, well, it was going great. And then yeah. something terrible happened where mm-hmm. in the book, it's more subtle and, and Nettie becomes really discouraged with yeah. how missionary work, like how that has sort of manifested in Africa. She's over it, which of course is like not touched on. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and also there's more background about Nettie and Celia's paternity. Yes. That is not <laughs> touched on. No. And it's a very important detail and part yeah. of the story because you spend most of the movie going, oh no, this poor girl victim of incest her kids byproducts of it how horrible but she still loves them and wants them back and then in the movie it's just like a blip where Celie's like and then I found out actually Paul was my step Paul kids are good right Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's truly just like after the and so my kids aren't my siblings and my kids are just my kids that's great anyway moving on (laughs) zooms through it zooms through and it's like this is a major thing the person who she's at the funeral this person who changed the course of her life she finds out actually it's a whole story of like their birth father was a store owner who got lynched Mm -hmm. he you know was like respected in the black community and basically implied like a civil rights leader he gets killed the mother like loses her mind and in that moment of just depression and issues she's going through this guy swoops in and realizes oh I can get control of her house and her store and all this land because she's so out of it like I can just marry her and also get access to her young daughter and he takes advantage which that's a compelling story steven spielberg (laughs) why gloss over that yeah and like erases that super super important plot point about 
their mother because it's like there is a lot i mean in this at yeah. least does come through in the movie is like there's a huge connection like the emphasis is put on mothers and daughters over mothers and sons over fathers and daughters like there's a strong i mean even like with the emphasis of Celie is thinking of olivia talks about olivia more than she talks about adam yeah. poor adam which right? is a little but- like okay i mean <laughs> you also knew adam longer like you kept, but okay you don't even care don't okay no okay sure <laughs> were you guys not cool uh but yeah like the emphasis is put on mothers and daughters so why not include more about yeah, their mother because like the mother is uh, Celie's like old enough to understand when her mom dies like they're teenagers by the time she dies yeah. right. so it's a little like what was their relationship like it it's hinted at that she the mom is aware that the dad is assaulting her and was angry and they've like broken hearted but he makes her feel like she's the reason your mom was broken hearted and died because you tempted me you evil child whatever sick stuff mm-hmm. But in reality, it's like she's never processed losing the actual father of her children. Mm. And it's like, wouldn't that have been something to see or have Celie talk about with Nettie after they're at Mister's? Like, how do they miss their mom? What was their mom? (laughs) And we never get that. Yeah. I feel like an absent mother is so often like explained away by like, well, she passed before you remembered her. And it's like, no, she was no. like high school aged. Yeah. She's literally at the funeral, like pushing the funeral because she's like, I'm going to get married in like two months. Like, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I was um, I was disappointed that that was scaled back on. And it also felt like, I mean, in the many ways that the movie sanitizes the events of the book, that felt like a pretty significant sanitizing like erasing the fact that their father was a civil rights leader who was lynched by white people yeah Mm. and instead it feels like steven uses it as a way to go "Ooh, you know what incest is icky let's backtrack (laughs) right that feels like the Mm -hmm. point yeah guess what you're about to see a family reunion and you don't have to worry that it's gross with incest (laughs) we cleared that up (laughs) yeah 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 it's a very like movie style avoidance yeah like unbeknownst to me i mean like when i went back to read the passages i was like oh he like sidestepped five different issues (laughs) by making that choice yeah and uh, just the choice to make it like a rush sentence read in a letter uh, is so weird to me and just even the choice to not get into Celie's ability to still love and want these children and to care about them and to want to hear about even knowing at that point like they're where she believes they come from all Mm -hmm. of that is like an interesting aspect of Celie's character that just he just didn't want to deal with and that's the part where I'm like what do you think this was going to be on the Disney channel like make a real movie (laughs) seriously yeah all right. Well, there's a little bit more of the recap left. Then, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. this is a long movie. It's a lot. It's uh, yeah, it really is. It is very long, and it still left out so much. Yeah, almost it's... like it should have been a mini series, maybe. Idk. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so we've come to the part where oh yeah, the, the two men, Mister and Shug's new husband, are cracking eggs over their heads and goofing around sure and while they're distracted with that suge goes to get the mail and she sees a letter to steely from Nettie, and steely reads it and the letter says that that Nettie has been writing to her all of these years and so steely realizes that albert probably kept those letters from her so steely and suge snoop around albert's stuff and they find all the letters that Nettie had sent over the years. 
and she reads them all and she learns about how what we were talking about, Nettie had been living in Africa with Celie's two children because Celie's father sold the babies, Adam and Olivia, to that woman who we saw at the beginning. Her name is Corrine. And then Nettie found them. It kind of glosses over this detail. I don't think it even mentions it. Like she became their maid. Yeah. But it's just like, I found them. And then I joined them on this missionary trip to Africa. But guess what? We're all coming back to the U.S. soon. Or we're trying to or something. And then one day when everyone has gathered for dinner, we've got Celie, Albert, uh, Shug, Shug's husband, Sophia, Harpo, Albert's father, Squeaky is there, a bunch of kids, and I don't know whose <laughs> kids those are. But Celie starts laying in to Albert, saying that oh. she's leaving him. He's a terrible person. His kids are rotten. She's had enough, and she curses him, saying that his mistreatment of her will come back onto him. And then Celie, mm -hmm. Shug, and Squeaky, a.k.a. Mary Agnes, leave. We cut to a couple years later, sometime later, Albert slash Mr. is living in squalor. His life is in shambles. It seems like Celie's curse is like <laughs> coming true. I, I thought that that was well done because it's like she didn't need to curse him. He was never yeah, going to be He was never going to be okay. He can't yeah. even feed himself. Manage, but sure. I, I do love yeah. there's like those Spielberg comedy moments. He goes to the mailbox, which now has like got bullet holes in it and as he's getting the mail like a screen on one of his windows falls <laughs> like his whole <laughs> yeah, house yeah, yeah, is just yeah. falling apart literally there's pigs mm. and stuff running and it's just it's great yeah 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 and then we get that scene that we were just talking about where Celie's father dies but it turns out that he wasn't even her biological father yep just, boop <laughs> yeah they just zip through plot points he died don't worry no incest, <laughs> no no, incest. all good <laughs> Um, and from this, Celie inherits her real father's house and store. So she opens up a clothing shop slash specifically a pants store. Yeah. She's making pants. With one size fits all pants that do seem to fit all. I was like, yeah. Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants? I wrote yeah. down, yeah. I wrote down, Celie founded the Sisterhood of the Traveling it's Pants. Truly, she like Harpo, who is very small man, and Sophia, they truth put on like wear the same pants, and they do fit. They look nice on they, both of them. They fit? They yeah, really do true. look nice. Yeah. 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 So one day, Celie and Shug are walking through a field with purple flowers. And Shug says something like, it pisses God off when you walk through a field and you see purple and you don't notice the color purple. Because purple just wants to be loved the way that everybody wants to be loved. And we're like, oh, so that's where that's the, name the name of the thing Oh, okay. They said it. <laughs> that's and that's the color purple. That's mm. the name of the movie. They have that conversation. They're like, but we're as straight friends. I would like to talk, have this discussion with you in a field in a very straight way. And I don't mean like those lavender lesbians. I just mean purple is nice. Purple. Okay, the straightest color. Purple is the straightest color. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that's why the purple Teletubby is famously the straightest one. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just pulled that out, like, effortlessly. <laughs> Had the purple Teletubby. <laughs> I mean, 
It's in my mind. Who else are you thinking when you think purple? Barney also. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Also so straight. It's Very true. straight. <laughs> okay. So the movie ends with a couple different scenes. One, Shug finally reconnects with her father. One day at church, she comes like marching in, singing gospel. It's a music. choir battle. It's <laughs> everything that happens in this movie. And then Steven Spielberg goes, you know, it'll be fun. a choir battle. Like mm-hmm. they are at the juke joint. She's singing for a performance. And the church is also going. And the church people are mad that they can hear the juke joint music. So they're like, sing a song in the choir. And Shook hearing it is like, you know what? Let's bring it to their doorsteps. And so they start playing and singing and walk over and yeah. then the church is like, okay, you guys win. You win. Yeah, the other soloist gracefully accepts yeah, defeat. She's yeah, truly she's truly like, <laughs> for a moment, she like comes out of the pews and she's like, oh my gosh, I, I'm going to go sing my heart out. And then she's like, you know what? <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. And Never mind. It is implied at this point that Suge must be pretty famous because Mr. this yeah. whole time has been listening to her record and hearing her on the radio and just constantly playing her famous song, Sister. So it's implied mm. she like does blow up. So there's, I guess some probably level of that choir girl being like, oh my goodness, the famous Shug Avery's here. (laughs) Maybe. We don't know. Steven didn't want to let us know that part. Unclear. Yeah. I was like, is she charting? Can I have more information? (laughs) She's selling tickets. Where is she on the Billboard Top 100? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How big is she that, okay, that she's on jukeboxes, but okay. Yeah. It's, you know, very Spielberg sentimental, but I really do love the scene where Celie doesn't, know that Shook is about to sing a song that she wrote for her and oh, it's so it's yeah if mm-hmm. only they had let them be gay like that would be <laughs> gay so Truly. let them be gay and yeah I will say the the church battle choir scene also again feels very Spielberg just in terms of yeah how much the church people and choir people are smiling there's this Mm. To me, it felt there's just a minstrelly aspect to some scenes where I feel Mm. a white director being like, smile more, smile more. Like, I hear that note and I feel it because, like, even when they're playing the piano, they're all just, like, smiling so big at Suge and you're just like... Do they even know this? Who she is? Like, what? <laughs> why are they also invested in this situation? Doesn't her dad hate her? Probably never really talks about her. And suddenly they're all just like, oh, yay. And it, it's just, yeah, it's so uh, just, yeah. They're just excited that number one superstar, Suge Avery, in America, Suge yeah. Avery has graced them, has with graced her them, presence. and is just hugging their pastor very intimately for some reason. <laughs> They're like, wow, our pastor knows a famous person. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I also, as someone who has, well, a complicated relationship with the concept of a father, I was like, why is she so obsessed with trying to, like, win his affection? He seems like a not very good person. But maybe that's just a me thing. Well, it also feels like because this movie is overtly critical of many things religion is not really one of them Mm. which it seems like the book is more ready to engage with Mm. my feel and again i don't know how shug's relationship with her father is presented in the book necessarily but it felt like he was this kind of amalgamation of like if she can reconcile with her father she can reconcile with religion and like 
quote unquote respectable society or like mm. I felt like he was also like a symbol of other stuff yeah in the book it's a lot of like he hates her because he feels like God gave her this voice and she could use it in church for the Lord mm. but he you know she brings shame upon them in the family a lot of why she is even sleeping with mister like how she becomes a mistress and she's like her relationships with married men uh, they go more into that because it's sort of like a her trying to get her father's attention and approval and love so it's like this manifestation of daddy issues so mm. it, it again just makes more sense because alice walker is a writer who knows what she's doing uh-huh. but i yeah in the movie i don't think you really get how not having her father has impacted mm-hmm. shook mm-hmm. you know it feels good to i guess see them come back together but again it's like why did she care so much about getting married to impress him why did she care so much about like Showing him... Right, if we knew more about it, I would have an easier time understanding her. What is compelling her to seek out this love and affection from him, but we just don't know enough, so I'm just like... Right, I mean, in the Spielberg-y way that in the kind of 11th hour of this movie, there are two tacitly implied redemption arcs for men who are abusive in different ways where we I, I mean I think we're led to believe I don't think that we're led to believe that she had been physically abused by her father but like neglected and abandoned mm-hmm. essentially emotionally they have no relationship and then he sort of like never has to say sorry he's just like oh today is the day I decide I decide to forgive you even though you mm-hmm. have done nothing wrong yeah yeah and then with with Albert I mean I think like you're talking about earlier Ashley it would make I I can't really see a world where it's like Albert's redemption arc, you know, and it's not totally a redemption arc. It's close enough. I don't know. Yeah. The way it's presented in the Spielberg movie, you're just like, he should have to move to a different city at least. <laughs> like, why is he still? He like- should have to lose his property or something. And yeah, his... I, I, it'll be, I guess we're getting to this part in the synopsis because it's like the very end that they rush mister's whole arc of like him just deciding you know what i have been cursed let me fix this and i almost didn't understand fully what was happening because we see him get a letter from like the federal government like it's the immigration and naturalization and in the book this is explained that basically to come back to america nettie and her kids need like a sponsor someone who's already in america so they've Mm. been asking Mm. Celie, and they're trying to petition and be like this is the only way you know we don't know anyone else uh back in in the states like we need you to do this and there's like a fee that they have to pay and Mm -hmm. obviously these letters are never getting to Celie. and then finally mister's like you know what let me do it i'll do it i'll redeem myself by paying the fee i'll pay the little fee right okay that makes sense i figured yeah. it must have been something like that but it's not it's i was just not, like, I they don't, don't know enough of how the like immigration like what and exactly yeah works. like why and why would like they need celia or mister to get involved in any way like yeah. what why if they went over there couldn't they just be like we were born in america born we here. have passports and come back uh right. yeah <laughs> but yes yeah in any case so the movie ends with after Mr. had paid the fee, Nettie returning with Celie's children, Adam and Olivia, as well as Tashi, who I think is Adam's wife. Yeah. And then there's just this beautiful, tearful reunion. And then the movie ends. So yes. that is the color purple. Wow. 
I mean, we also get Mr. looking at them and he walks his horse into the sunset. His wistful, I did a good thing and that. I'm not cursed anymore. And <laughs> yeah. And, and then we. Like, <laughs> no, you have to move. You have to yeah, move. You gotta. Uh. And we get the iconic, uh, also another famous thing that me and my cousin used to do all the time handshake, me and you, we, us never part, me and you, us have one heart. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, so. indeed. They're children again who found each other. And I feel like they're among the color purple. Yeah. When this happens. Yeah. Makes you think. All right. Let's take another quick break and we will come back to discuss. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back. I knew we were going to have half a discussion in the middle of the <laughs> I know, recap. I it's hard it. not to. It's hard, but I do. I'm glad that we... I mean, maybe we should start with the erasure of the Suge and Seely relationship, because that seems like the biggest erasure. Yeah, is that they have this beautiful relationship in the books. It is super gay. You understand the love they have for each other and that beyond just being into each other, it is a safety that they find in each other as women, that they've both been so disappointed by men Mm -hmm. and hurt by men. And I think it really is a disservice to Celie's character because in the movie, her ability to be romantic, to be sexual, is just completely washed away. She's basically played as though she has the mentality of a child. Like, she never really, like, steps into that adulthood of, I'm going to speak up for myself. I know what I want. I have feelings for this person. Instead, it just kind of is suggested. And then she has this big monologue at the dinner table where she's like, I'm going to speak up finally. 
But mm-hmm. it's so much more beautiful when you see that in this relationship with Shook, she's able to find her voice and stand up for herself and finally start to fight. So mm-hmm. to remove it, it's just, again, one of those really disappointing acts, arcs of it, I think. Again, that's what made me kind of fall out of love with the movie when I realized what I could have had reading the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a ton written about it. We'll link to a friend of the show, Princess Weeks, wrote a wonderful essay about it a couple of years ago. I think possibly when it was first announced that this new adaptation was going to come out. I wanted to share, there's a quote that's been pretty widely circulated that we've referenced before, because I think it's very easy for directors to be like, oh, I would have done this differently today. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to hand him the bare minimum, he didn't double down on the decision and say, and I do it again today. (laughs) (laughs) But the quote that is widely circulated, I think, during every round of this necessary discourse about how this relationship is completely erased. So Spielberg says, quote, there were certain things in the lesbian relationship between Suge Avery and Celie that were finally detailed in Alice's book that I didn't feel could get a PG-13 rating. And I was shy about it. In that sense, perhaps I was the wrong director to acquit some of the more sexually honest encounters between Suge and Celie, because I did soften those. I basically took something that was extremely erotic and very intentional, and I reduced it to a simple kiss. I got a lot of criticism for that. <laughs> unquote. I wonder why, Stephen. I wonder why. <laughs> but, why, yeah. why? <laughs> Weird. Weird that that happened. Mm-hmm. And I was curious because I have not seen the musical and I know that that is that adaptation of the yeah, movie but I was I, like so in the original musical and I've heard I mean again never trust a movie so it's like it's it's hard <laughs> there has been a lot of talk and I think at least press buzz that the new adaptation will actually rise to the occasion of the source material and include the queer relationship Which I'm interested in seeing how it's done, because it seems like there was another round of criticism in how the original Broadway musical plays it down. Yeah. Oh, it's the musical's not gay at all. And it's a musical, so it should be gay. (laughs) It's a, yeah. It's not. I saw it uh, when Michelle Williams was in it on Broadway. And I mean, I loved it. I love the music. I do like the musical. But I mean, if Spielberg's goal was to make the movie PG-13, they were like, we got to make sure this musical has like a G rating. Like people have to be able to bring their six-year-olds to enjoy the bright colors. So it's definitely (laughs) even more just like, whitewashed and kind of like those details are missing. It's still really fun though, but at the same time I've always kind of wondered why this story? Why is this the story about black female struggle that is depicted so raw, so honestly in the book? Why is this what you've decided should be turned into a PG-13 general audience affair? Like, can we be honest about it? Like, can't we have our our R-rated narratives? Because that's Mm -hmm. what this is. And it feels so telling, just like and this discussion has been had with a number of movies, but like, what can you get away with in a PG-13 rating? And why is showing a lesbian relationship not okay when we see, I mean, I, I think that's like sort of my central issue with the way that this movie is adapted. There's a million ways to criticize it, but that like on its face, this movie is very, very comfortable with showing the black women at its center being tremendously abused Mm -hmm. and are not comfortable or like shy and pull away and fade to black when it comes to showing these same characters experiencing actual joy and pleasure. Like the pleasure is erased or just hinted at, but the abuse you see, you know, for the most part, 
pretty clearly. The thing that yeah. bugged me the most, and I was like, oh, the scene where Sophia punches the white guy in the face. They yeah. don't show it. They have a car pass. Yeah. Like it's like when SpongeBob yeah. is swearing and it's like the dolphin sound. Yeah. <laughs> they do that. I was just like, yeah. They're comfortable showing black women being abused the entire movie, but they're like, but we don't want to show a white man getting punched in the face. Oh, they they do cut back when when Sophia's on the ground with her skirt yeah. up. You see, and then they're like, you should mm-hmm. see this. You should see this woman in the mud. Unreal. They show the sheriff like pistol whipping her. Yeah. In the head, and then you show the yeah she collapses to the ground. Her skirt flies up, exposing her underwear. Like, why is that okay to show? But not, I mean, it just feels like an admission of what the creative team was comfortable showing and what they were like, well, we cut it short of showing a relationship between two black women that's sexual and uh, punching a white guy in the face. Any sort of abuse or humiliation, PG-13, no problem, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is just as much an issue with the ratings system as it is Uh, with the creative choices, because theoretically, in a just world, there would be some fucking pushback for that. Yeah. There's a documentary, I've referenced this on the show before, but a documentary called This Film Is Not Yet Rated, and it explores largely how sex scenes or like romantic scenes between or among queer people, even though they will be framed and choreographed like basically identically to like hetero sex scenes, the movies with queer sex depicted in them will be given like NC-17 ratings where, again, basically identical like choreography and like body placement and like the same level of nudity. It's not as though like you're seeing like hardcore porn, like dicks getting sucked or anything like that. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and I think it also like is inherently connected to just like seeing women experiencing pleasure in movies at mm-hmm. all is so deep. I always think about the like the but I'm a cheerleader episode. I think we talked about this a yeah. lot mm-hmm. because that movie, the like sex scenes in that had to be largely cut to be able to get an R rating or I, I forget right. which, but there was scenes that like the MPAA was like, this is too scandalous. So we're going to give you like either an NC-17 or an R rating. Right. Basically make it inaccessible to to people. Yeah. But even within like heterodynamics too, where it's like a blowjob can be in a PG-13 movie, no problem. (laughs) But if someone's going down on a a woman, that's, Uh -uh. we got to keep that. We can't let them know. We can't let them know. (laughs) Only release it in France. Don't even bring it (laughs) to my shores. Like, it's ridiculous. And and uh, yeah, just again in this, I even the kiss between Suge and Celie, I feel like it's a little just even further degraded because when Celie finally does see Nettie again, they also share this like long kiss. <laughs> Obviously not sexual, they are sisters, but mm-hmm. it makes it feel like, oh, this is just a form of black female connection. Mm, true. Like Europeans, they just deeply kiss when they really care about each other. <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> I, right. I think it makes sense for Nettie because she is coming from Africa and like has these customs and is seeing her sister after a long time. But for between Sugar and Avery, no that's not just like black girlfriends lady, like my lady girl no it's gay right. it's supposed to be gay it's yeah. not a sexy kiss it's like they peck each other on the lips a couple times and then like when they finally do the deeper kiss 
it immediately like pans away to like see their hands very lightly like their fingertips are like kind of touching each other's shoulders and like hip or something like that but it's I want not an oral history of that day on set <laughs> yeah it's, just, like, it's not an intimate kiss it's just it, yeah. it's yeah. not hot and heavy it's just like, like yeah i think steven was behind the camera going not the whole hand on her shoulder just the just the fingertips just the, no, tip. yeah. just just the, the tips. tips just the tips just please just a little touching just not too much uh, so that was disappointing very telling yeah. yeah and i think it's like one of the most famously mishandled areas of this movie but there's just so but much that is yeah. i want to talk a little bit about alice walker in general and, and specifically what her relationship to this production was mm-hmm. but i feel beholden to say alice walker very famous writer very well respected also has her fair share of pretty tremendous fuck-ups in terms of expressing anti-Semitic stances, spreading Holocaust denial, and most recently, siding with J.K. Rowling. So we're not going to get into those issues in detail today, but I do want to acknowledge them because they're all from the last 10 years yeah she's she's no tony morrison okay there's there's reasons we yeah like some other people a little more oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it particularly that i was reading her history with anti-semitism and you're like alice uh yeah yeah she's also pro-palestinian liberation which is not anti-semitic but she's also anti-semitic and you're just like you are not helping, helping. You're, not, uh, <laughs> you're not helping okay. As it pertains to this movie, <laughs> to this movie sorry, yes. my blood pressure just uh, raised. As it pertains to this movie, because we hinted at this earlier where we're like, how did we get to Steven Spielberg? And mm-hmm. who was their pushback? You know, what was it? From what I can gather, Alice Walker, like you were saying, Ashley, like she didn't really want the movie to be adapted, especially a story that is so rooted in black womanhood and there's a queer relationship. Like, how would you imagine in the 80s that someone wouldn't? fuck it up until it was unrecognizable what convinced her was like where we're talking about where she was like well let's see if we can produce a decent adaptation of this from the inside i thought it was interesting that her contract included that she would serve as a project consultant and that Mm -hmm. 50 percent of the production team outside of the cast which is obviously vast majority black actors, but that 50% of the production team would be uh, African-American women or, quote, people of the third world, unquote. Pretty vague. Yeah, a little mm. vague. Okay. But that she, you know, it was integral for her to approving this project at all to bring in people who are massively underrepresented in film into this production, which I think mm-hmm. is really fucking cool. Like, that's great. And one of the reasons if not the main reason she was reluctant to have this be adapted to a movie is because she knew how poorly black people and women and black women in particular are treated by hollywood and she's like i don't want that same thing i don't want it to get mishandled if my movie gets adapted but like we mentioned she i read that she convened with a group of five women to discuss the merits of accepting this offer to have her book adapted to film. And they were like, well, if this does get made, it could help improve the like exploitation of black people and black women in movies. So let's just kind of, yeah, it's like an inside job. And we get to put a ton of 
black actors who haven't had this chance to blow up in a Steven Spielberg movie. Let's do Mm -hmm. it. Let's Mm go. And I love that there's like equal emphasis behind the camera too. Like, yeah, it's, it's really cool. And yeah. what what I found frustrating was that she, so she was not a screenwriter by trade, but she was a Pulitzer Prize winning fucking writer. And she does not get screenplay credit. She wrote the first draft and then they kicked it to a white guy who had previously, or no, hadn't even written Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade yet. <laughs> but they, I mean, the sole credited writer is... Oh, I don't know how to say his name. Oh, Meno Mayes? Meno yeah. Mayes? Yeah. And that Alice Walker was sort of forced to accept that, even though she still insisted that she be given final script approval. So she worked on the script throughout, but she's obviously not credited. Mm-hmm. And which I, ugh, is ridiculous. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And she also, I mean, I listened to an interview that she did more recently about just like how she was learning about movie production through working on this, where it sounds like Spielberg, you know, she had things where she was like, all right, Spielberg, these are the things I need you to shoot. I will not compromise on these scenes being shot. And he was like, all right, I'll shoot them. And (laughs) many of them didn't end up in the movie. And "And that's how I learned about how editing sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Mm hmm. And then I think the other really influential black creative voice behind the camera here is Quincy Jones, mm-hmm. who is one of the main producers. I guess he was, I watched an interview from the 80s where he was really integral in pushing for Spielberg as a director. Yeah, And then he also curated this iconic Quincy Jones score. And I mean, the score to this movie is fucking ridiculous. It's great. Mm. But yeah, I, I don't know. I... I think it's just it's so fucking telling and frustrating that alice walker doesn't have at least a shared credit like okay yeah if she doesn't know how to write a screenplay fair enough but also why do we have to have meno mayes come in to do it like some white dutch dude yeah and i think that for me that was one of when i because i didn't realize you know when you're a kid you don't know what all those names and the credits mean and as a high school after reading the book i realized like wait a second wait a second, she didn't write, she, it doesn't say she wrote it. What, who is this? And that yeah. is when I started to fall out of love with the movie and start to question, mm-hmm. you know, why were certain things cut? Why are certain things presented this way? I think then you start to wonder like, okay, yeah, Mr. is a more one-dimensional character and Alice Walker had a ton of issues because she based the character on like her grandfather, I think, and she was hurt by that. And then you start to be like, oh yeah, well, of course some white Dutch guy didn't understand the complexity of like living Mm -hmm. up to the patriarchal burdens your father has given to you uh, while also like harming women and all of this. So of course it just doesn't translate into the script. Yeah. I would say most, if not all of the male characters in the movie feel extremely caricature ish slash just like, stereotypical now do i appreciate that at its core this movie is about like women sticking together and forming bonds and friendships to protect each other against the like abusive behavior of the men in their life and like eventually being able to escape their abusers yes but Mm -hmm. like we've said it fails to portray any of the nuance and any of the context that explains why these men are like this 
Yeah. Right. It's just not. Because it's kind of, the movie makes you wonder, why does Suge go to be with Mr.? Why does she engage in a relationship with him if she sees how he treats Seely? And the book does a better job of outlining, like, how he can be this sweet, romantic person. And, you know, like, he can be everything she wants sometimes. uh, Mm -hmm. But then there's this darkness. And... I think that makes it a little more believable because I think, you know, for us, by the time Celie's deciding, like, maybe I should slit his throat, it's like, girl, you should have done this 20 minutes ago. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, girl, right. kill him. Get him. <laughs> I'm over this. Get his ass. Right. And even though it yeah. sounds like, I mean, Spike Lee had a arguably outsized reaction, I do understand why he was concerned about how black men are portrayed in movies that are written sure. and directed by white people. White guys. That is a yeah. very, very valid concern. Yeah. It becomes complicated by like that being used to undercut or like it be implied that that is undercutting both Alice Walker and an all black cast in an, an industry where at that time it rarely if ever happened. But I also like I, I do think that I'm glad I guess not glad. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear that Alice Walker wrote Albert to be less one dimensional, not because I think that like abusers should have more lore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But but I do think that like it's we, we've talked about this trope a million times on the show where it's like patriarchy, the guy, just the guy that does all of the patriarchy yeah. things. And he is the bad guy and we get rid of him at the end. And then misogyny is solved, which doesn't actually do very much to move the needle in how we talk about anything. And particularly with like white writers and directors, it feels like there are tropes on how black men are portrayed in Hollywood present in these characters because of what is taken out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's just really one of those like, yeah, I get the people who were mad. I still like the movie, but everybody's right. It's just truly everyone (laughs) is right. Spike Lee is right. At the same time, I wish that we could have seen these other versions where maybe Spike Lee did it, where Alice had more say in the script But what we Mm -hmm. got, you know, is past generations to generations. I don't know. I truly do watch this movie probably every year with my family. Mm -hmm. It is always being played on BET. You know, the cast, I think, is what ended up making it what it became. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you get Oprah. It's gonna stick. I mean, (laughs) right, right. There is, I, I haven't read the full book, but there is an interesting excerpt uh, slash discussion of it written in the New Republic recently, in the last couple of years, let's say. Uh, mm-hmm. But there is a book written by um, writer Salamisha Tillett called In Search of the Color Purple, The Story of an American Masterpiece, which is a series of essays and just reflections on not just this, not just the movie or the book, but how the culture received it. I mean, which is... A lot. And I learned a little more about how Alice Walker was treated in not even just the fallout of the movie, but the fallout of the book, which I think, again, complicates what we were just talking about, where it makes a ton of sense that black directors and black male directors in particular would have an issue with Steven Spielberg portraying mister in the way that he does in this movie Mm -hmm. but the fact that that same energy was applied to Alice Walker when the book first came out 
reads very, very differently. Yeah. I didn't know that when The Color Purple of the Book came out, an excerpt or a piece on it was included in Ms. Magazine and uh, it was on the cover of the magazine. And you know, Gloria Steinem was essentially tasked with defending Alice Walker for including her work that had black male characters who were abusive towards black women and how that is a completely different discussion. Mm-hmm. I have a quote from uh, Salome Shatillet sort of speaking to that. Her, she says, quote, the controversy also took such a firm hold because it drew upon a stereotype that at the time was well known among African-Americans, but far less familiar to white people, the black woman as race traitor. Likewise, Tillett powerfully pulls from the color purple controversy as an example of how black women have been asked to silence their own pain to supposedly serve the greater cause of racial uplift. Threaded throughout these attacks on the color purple is the idea that the danger of reinforcing stereotypes about black male sexuality is too great to allow room for black women to have justice, unquote. Mm. Sounds like an interesting book. I'm just like, man. Yeah, that gets that sums it up. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's why Spike Lee was angry. That was absolutely, you know, I think a lot of people, even in the black community today, it's, I think, beloved. Like, I grew up loving it because I have a single mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think there is still some a lot of animosity uh, where people want to call this, like, black tragedy porn. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's just this sad thing about black women getting beaten. And so it should be written off uh, or trauma porn. And... Mm-hmm. You know, I I think that's just so far from the truth. This is a lot of it is based on Alice Walker's real life. Mm -hmm. I think these are stories that need to be told. Uh, And at the time, there was a large contingent of people who were like, if we tell these stories, they won't give us our respect, our justice. We won't. And it's like they never will. (laughs) They never will. Sorry, they're never going to do it. So let us tell our stories. And it wouldn't be as much of an issue if there were just more stories (laughs) about black characters living their normal lives and you would be able to see black joy and you would be able to see black men not being abusive and being very loving caring partners and and parents Mm -hmm. and things like that but because especially at this time when this movie's coming out there were so few examples of of any other mainstream stories about black people yeah of course the kind of reaction to that would have been like this is all we get like the and especially black men being represented this way right because there were there was very little else to look to to say well here's an example of how we're not all (laughs) abusers yeah so yeah you know in in another world i wish i could see the version of the movie that is made with a black male director and how they would have approached that with alice walker Mm-hmm. But or a black woman director. Or a bl- yeah, yeah. Okay, let's not get too crazy. Was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We, we literally we just dream? got a black woman to direct a Marvel movie. Let's not push it. Okay, <laughs> which is getting great reviews. I'm really excited to see it. I haven't been excited to see it a Marvel, but I was like, I saw it had a lot of fun. I thought it was good. I got burned by Doctor Strange. Oh, I, I didn't even Mr. see that one. Mister Weird. Yeah, I went. I I got burned by that one last year, but I give him one a year. And I've been saving the Marvels for this year. It's a good one. Yeah, the the new adaptation is being directed by Blitz the Ambassador, a black male director. Again, I I guess I just wonder, because 
very different dynamics, obviously, but it also reminds me of like when we had our discussion about Carrie years ago, where it's like an adaptation mm. of an adaptation of an adaptation. And like, can you weed out these mistakes or erasures from the 80s if you're still adapting it on that? And like, I just, I'm very curious how what creative choices are changed yeah. and what are not and like how could you un- we just need more original stories i think is the solution is, is really the answer because you know seeing it like i know when i go i'm gonna want to hear the lines i love i'm gonna want to hear see the mm-hmm. classic moments like that's what we're there for at the end of the day because it's the color purple so it makes it hard to expand that story and then you add on that it's the musical and Mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to be great, but I am expecting truly to see the a, a movie version of the musical. I, I don't think it's going to yeah. really blow my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really my fear is always like, wow, it's the like queerest movie of the year. And there's like a little like, yeah, <laughs> in like the background of a scene where something else yeah. is happening. And they're like, wow, the revolution is here, folks. And you're like, all right. <laughs> But okay, of what we have in this movie, I really genuinely do, even though it it is, you know, like very Spielberg soapy. Mm -hmm. I think we're like Alice Walker's like the relationship dynamics between the women in The Color Purple are extremely complex. I really appreciate that. Celie is allowed to make mistakes throughout the story. Mm. I feel like women are very rarely allowed to make mistakes and not encourage the audience to turn on her. But we see relationships between women grow and change over Mm -hmm. the years, which is how life works. But when (laughs) Celie, you know, at first tells Harpo, you should beat Sophia. Sophia confronts her. Celie apologizes, doesn't do it again. And they have a kind of beautiful relationship moving forward. And it comes full circle when, you know, Celie, I mean, again, it's like Spielberg where it's like, Celie said the magic words and Sophia (laughs) was back. And also putting the impetus on her as if Harpo had no choice, but to do what she said when he doesn't even Mm -hmm. take her seriously, like is ridiculous, but that Celie, you know, really shows up for Sophia in as many ways as she can and that Sophia appreciates that and the relationship grows. That's beautiful. I mean, the relationship with Suge is always going to be frustrating because you know what's not (laughs) there. Yeah. But I mean, I I think of what we have, I still like what we have. It's just like, yeah, knowing that there is more is incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that you didn't get more because some white Dutch guy and Steven Spielberg they just didn't want it. It's on like, them. Like, <laughs> this is too sexy for us. Yeah. This is too right, much. But it's like, again, like the ratings thing and the culture as it was, it also had no issue showing Mr. Having sex with a very young Seely. Like, no problem. Uh, yeah. You know, statutory raping yeah. her. She's like yeah. straight up 14 or 15 in that scene. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. <sighs> I mean, we've already talked about it, but it's just yeah. like, it's so ridiculous. But I mean, women are still very much showing up for each other. And Mm -hmm. the way that Celie grows as a character is almost entirely comes from within herself and also from observing the women around her. Mm -hmm. And it's done in a very sanitized way in this movie, but it does happen. And I cry when the movie told me to cry. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm sobbing when Nettie's there and her and the scarf is blowing in the wind. I'm sobbing. Mm. I'm sobbing. They got me. (laughs) It's true. Two fun production facts that I found that Oprah, when Oprah was like in, I guess, some meeting with 
Steven Spielberg early in the production of this movie, she was like, oh, Harpo's Oprah backwards. That's weird. Uh, and <laughs> yes, this is a big thing in Oprah lore. Yes, Harpo is Oprah backwards. As a young subscriber to O Magazine as a child, I knew that story before I saw the movie, I think. And that, that's why her production company is named Harpo. Like she yeah. names her whole thing Harpo because of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that like the new, or maybe it is like technically owned, but like the new Color Purple adaptation is like produced by Harpo, which yeah. is like I mean, just the irony. Poetic. Yeah. Her talk show was produced by Harpo. Like she had a Harpo Studios in Chicago. Like, She's in it. She was like, that was my man in the movie, and I've taken that. <laughs> oh, I mean, and just a quick mention. I mean, again, if you're if, if you grew up within Oprah lore, you probably know this already, but that part of the reason that Oprah felt so extremely strongly about this material was that she had grown up having experiences like Seely and had been incestually abused and understandably was very connected to Alice Walker's work and lobbied for this part hard mm. and then killed it did yeah. a wonderful job yeah the other detail that i wanted to add just because i think it's funny is there's a casting director i wrote his name down casting director named ruben cannon who was choosing the main cast and recommended whoopi goldberg whoopi goldberg came into audition and did her stand-up routine, first of all, which is so weird. Iconic. And second of all, did a joke about E.T. smoking weed. <laughs> uh-huh. And I just think that that is funny because that in no way proves that you could play the part of Seely, <laughs> but she still was unbelievable. Like, I can't yeah, yeah. believe that just, like, has to be the best debut film yeah. performance of all time but she got it by being like what if et smoked weed yeah <laughs> awesome at the time she was like the biggest black female stand-up in the country yeah i do know alice walker was actually not very happy that she was cast because she felt that Celie should have been larger more overweight and mm. someone who is like considered kind of like more mainstream unattractive whereas Whoopi goldberg is like gorgeous mm-hmm. so that was another thing where alice walker was like i just wasn't happy i felt like you know i wrote these characters who looked like real people and they got actors and it's like well that's kind of how movies go so yeah yeah, I mean, Whoopi is incredible in this performance. And her monologue at the dinner table uh, toward the end is just my favorite thing. So good. It's so, uh, I always forget that she, because, I mean, she's so famously EGOT. But I always forget that she did not win for this movie. She won for Ghost? Yeah, mark, I think she won for which Ghost. Which is a, a wonderful performance. But, like, of the two, you're like, Really? Okay. 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 Sure. There's a few kind of themes or just like things that the movie explores that I feel are like kind of connected or just like all in the same vein of like power dynamics in relationships between characters. There is like characters relationships with their fathers, which again Mm -hmm. is like very emphasized in this movie in a way that it seems like maybe the book doesn't do quite so much or that it like places as much emphasis on like mother child relationships and then the way that women are perceived by men and and treated by men in this movie where there's just you know all these things of 
like with Suge Avery, love the character. You have like Albert's father is insulting her and, you know, saying she's unclean. She's a Jezebel. She has nasty woman's disease. All of her children have different fathers, things like that. It's literally sounding like Trump in 2015. Right. Like just doing that. You nasty woman. If I had to guess who you were quoting. (laughs) Right. And then you have like Celie's voiceover. And at this point in the movie, you don't really know what dynamic Suge and Celie have quite yet. But Celie's voiceover is like saying like, folks don't like it when people are too proud or too free. And because Suge is like this woman who who has autonomy over her life and her choices and her career, you know, and she has this what's considered to be this kind of unsavory profession where she's singing in juke joints and all this stuff. Everyone thinks like the men, especially and like the older generation of men with like Albert's father and her own father, like see her as this sinner. And then you have like Sophia as this very headstrong person doesn't take bullshit from anyone. Albert and Harpo alike are threatened by this. And yeah. And briefly, so is Celie. Yeah. True. Yes. Yeah. And I like, I think it's so clear in the scene where she first uh, sees Sophia and she talks about how Sophia and Harpo were coming to meet the dad, Mr. For the first time. And Celie is like, she came storming up. She's like, I could see him from so far. She's so big. Like, she's so horrible. Mm. She's so headstrong and loud. And I think some of that is jealousy, but then slowly mm-hmm. she comes to kind of accept her. But I think that is a theme, like how these three main women all have to deal with their power dynamics against men in different ways, where yeah. Celie, you know, knows she doesn't have like the privilege of beauty. Uh, so she has become more timid where uh, Sophia realizes she doesn't have that, but she decides to become more headstrong and outspoken. Uh, mm-hmm. And she has that family support where she's allowed to do that. You know, and the, even in their wedding, like her family keeps Mr. Away from her and is <laughs> yeah, like, no, right. we're not dealing with you. So mm-hmm. she is able to do that. But then you also have Suge, who isn't. She doesn't have that fit, but she does have her beauty. And she uses that to get what she you know needs to survive in this patriarchal society. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like to the, the power dynamic thing where... There are various conversations where, you know, like Nettie says to Celie, like, you need to have the upper hand over Mr.'s kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, you got to show him who's boss. And then, like, Mr. tells his son Harpo that he needs to have the upper hand over Sophia. And there's all these, like, because this is a very patriarchal society and because men are conditioned to think that they have to control these women who if they aren't controlled they'll end up like suge as these jezebels quote unquote right and and you're like oh no i might be hot and talented (laughs) you'll you'll get nasty women's disease you'll have to sit in a tub if you don't control your woman she'll get that disease and then but suge has most if not all of the power in her relationship with albert you see him like Oh, I'll bend over backwards for you. I'll do whatever you want. I'll try to cook for you, even though I don't, I can't, I don't know how to cook at all. Like, it's just interesting to see how the various characters kind of just use what they have, like the tools that they have, like you said, Ashley, like what they have got going for them, that they can kind of almost exploit to not feel so powerless (laughs) 
in right. a world where poor black women have so little power, especially in like Jim Crow era South yeah. where this is taking place. And the book is, and I think this is another area where Alice is upset in how the movie makes the men really one dimensional because the book is very clear that one of the reasons these men feel they need to control a woman is because they are also controlled in this racist Jim Crow society is mm-hmm. that they, uh, and we kind of see it in the scene with uh, Miss Millie when she's like, oh, you know, Sophia, you can spend all Christmas with your family and I'll drive home. And then she can't. And all these black men are trying to help her, but she immediately is like, mm. they're trying to attack me. And, you know, they start to <sighs> be submissive to her. Mm-hmm. And so yes. it's kind of hinted at there. It's like the first time you see Harpo like stand down to a woman and be like, oh no, Miss and ma'am, we're trying to help you. And it's also mm-hmm. one of my favorite examples of just white feminism, guilt and privilege in that scene, because mm-hmm. she just immediately starts going, no, <laughs> But in the movie that isn't so clear, like what is driving their need to control? It does feel very like Mr. Just wants Seely because he needs someone around the house to take care of his kids and clean. Uh, But in the book, it's a little more like he has this expectation that if he is meant to be subservient in the society, someone should be subservient to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is why he has this Seely person, even though he does like have romantic feelings for Suge that he has a whole mistress, like they have sex, they hook Mm -hmm. up. But to him, it's like, no, to prove my manhood and to have a sense of self when my black masculinity is degraded, I need to have a Sealy type. So the book, I think, is a little more interesting with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) But in the movie, it's just like, dude, why are you being such a dick? (laughs) That's another area where like, I think like Spike Lee's criticism is applicable where there is this void of historical context yeah. mm-hmm. and it's made to more seem like, well, it's in the nature of these characters to behave this way. And because you're not given, I mean, it's like you do get the year, but there's not a lot of historical yeah. specificity. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. none of the black men in the film, like really face any racism other than that moment with the car. Like you never, it's never, yeah. You know, you'd see uh, Celie afraid in a shop because a white shop owner is, you know, like looking at her and is like, do you need something, Mrs.? You know, Mm -hmm. and you see that discomfort. You see Sophia be harmed. But like the men, it seems like, oh, do they just like have it pretty good? They're just like building their juke joints, having businesses, enjoying Mm -hmm. their farms. Like, what? No. (laughs) Right. You know, and, and then they come in at the end with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, actually, their dad was lynched because he was a civil rights guy. So don't. So, yeah. So the guys don't have it easy. <laughs> we but gotcha. if you aren't very closely listening to that one very brief <laughs> yep. I missed moment, it my first viewing. You missed the entire yeah. thing. You missed the whole thing if you don't. Re- yeah. If you don't hear that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When it's like that originally was a huge plot point as well it should have been but in the glazing over stuff like that just like removes historical specificity and does make the men seem abusive in a complete void mm-hmm. and it could have been such an interesting thing to examine that tendency for marginalized people feeling so powerless and disempowered by the world around them that some people will try to then exert any power over anyone else that they can. And that's obviously not something to admire. That's, you know, not good behavior, but it happens very frequently. And it's, I I haven't seen many movies that really explore that very thoughtfully or in like a nuanced way where, you know, marginalized people will marginalize someone who they perceive to have less power than them. Yeah. 
And to me, it's such a fascinating thing. But yeah, movies just kind of... Yeah, I will say, if you've read or seen Their Eyes Were Watching God, uh, yes. Zora Neale Hurston, so Oprah also was producing this one, but they made it a series, a limited series. Mm-hmm. So they had more time. They dig mm-hmm. into more things. And I thought it was incredibly done. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's like the only time where I, I really feel an adaptation has done a great job of trying to really capture the history, the political tone, the racism. Maybe Oprah learned by the time she got to that one, she was like, guys, I know what we got to do. Right. Or just like had creative control. Like that's. Yeah. Her adaption of um, Beloved is also really good. But yeah. Yeah. I think it. So I got to put the blame on Spielberg. I mean, fair. I'm comfortable with that. I mean, Mr. Steve. Mr. Steve, it's on you. Mr. Steve. Oh, oh, I had this is a really goofy observation. But because we just covered Steel Magnolias, Ashley, I was like, wow, Miss Millie and Clary Belcher, similar, the mayor's wife. Oh, they're in like alternate universe Clary Belcher. Mm. Anyways, that was just a thought I had because that is a, <laughs> a Southern movie that mm-hmm, conspicuously erases anyone who is not white from the story. Um, <laughs> yeah, I also thought that the, I, I'm curious. I didn't read this section of the book, so I don't know how sanitized that exchange is because I, I know that the way that Squeak was involved in sort of negotiating Sophia's prison sentence isn't really touched on. Yeah, it's on not in, in there. The None of like her prison sentence is really in there. It's really detailed. Like the what she goes through, the torture they put her through. Like mm. they go visit her. Those are de- like you know bringing her stuff mm. and trying to help her and how they slowly see her like become less of herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when she gets out, her like having to work for that family is more of like a punishment. It's more them being like, yeah. we got you. Uh, Well, the movie kind of makes it like she didn't have a choice. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. this was the only job she could get, I guess. But Mm -hmm. it really shows that it's a more sinister act of like white aggression. Yeah. Yeah. I do agree that this is like a pretty solid example of uh, white woman multiple times at every scene she's in she is weaponizing <laughs> every scene in the movie she's just like but i've always been so nice to you i'm, I'm oh so good god. to you so meanwhile she's like doing donuts in the backyard i'm like <laughs> oh my god oh my god she's just punching sophia in the face like i'm so kind to you why don't you <sighs> accept it and then sophia doesn't get to spend christmas with her family she has to leave immediately because yeah. miss millie can't drive <laughs> yes. I'm glad that there is the inclusion of the Miss Millie character because it does, I think, maybe better than other things that the movie glosses over, but like it does really show her as this like specific type of white woman who fetishizes black people, not in like a sexual way that we know of with Miss Millie, but and there's probably a better word for it, but like she like She's very drawn to Sophia and her children. She's like, oh, aren't you the cutest little little kid? Kiss, kiss, kiss on the face. Yeah. And she's like, Sophia, please work it's for like me. infantilizing. Yes, for sure. Yeah, the infantilizing. I think it's also uh, with Sophia, the mammification mm-hmm, of black mm-hmm. women where she sees, you know, this larger black woman who she believes should want to take care of her and be, you know, her mm-hmm. nanny. And yeah. And I think she's like, the type of white person who thinks they're being an ally to black people and who yeah. like <laughs> understands, I think probably on a, only a very, very surface level, like the plight of black people, but she's not an ally to them. She's still like extremely scared 
of black people and she's not trying to be an ally. She doesn't want to be a friend. She wants Sophia to work for her. Like, so it's all these things where she like has this very warped perception of like, she thinks she's doing the right thing and she's very much not. And that is a dynamic that still exists very much to this day. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that the movie like shows that. Yeah, Spielberg got that part right. He did yeah. uh he did manage to nail down that part. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good job, Mr. Steve. <laughs> Is there anything else anyone wants to discuss? I mean, we could keep going forever, but that was about everything that I had. Yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like we touched on everything. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot, yes. It's just so, it's such a long movie. There's so much that happens. It's, mm-hmm. I, I mean, truly, there's so much that happens that at the end, they're like, can we just have a letter that like speeds this all up? Just one letter. She's like, your dad isn't really your dad. His stepdad. This, we own the land, by the way. Uh, your kids are good. I got them. And we're good. Gets, gets to the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it really does feel rushed in those like last 20 minutes or so. Yeah. You're like, oh my gosh, so much happened, but what? I can't keep up. Yeah. Well... Does the movie pass the Bechdel test? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It does. Quite a lot. The main, or at least the moments of like levity in this pretty heavy movie are women interacting with each other and their Mm -hmm. friendship and their bond. And I like that very much about this movie. Yeah. Um, As far as our nipple scale... Our scale of zero to five nipples, where we evaluate the movie based on examining it through an intersectional feminist lens. I'll give this, I think, three nipples, and I might be swayed (laughs) to give it more or maybe less. I don't know. I think that Spielberg, Mr. Steve directing this movie And that other white guy whose name I forget, who is credited as writing this screenplay, even though, you know, many drafts were written, some of them by Alice Walker, and she consulted on the project through the development of this script along the way. Again, she's not credited. Right. Yeah. But because when you watch the movie, you can tell that it, it was a book adapted by a black writer and then like whitewashed and straight washed and things like that. Would the movie have had the budget and the just like renown that it ended up getting if Spielberg didn't direct it? Possibly not. So it's like this catch 22 thing, but there's components of it that end up being very disappointing because of how these white filmmakers handled certain things but again at its core this is a movie about like sisterhood and female friendships and female relationships and women looking out for each other and protecting each other for the most part from the abuse that men inflict upon them so the premise i like very much the performances are great there's just something to be desired in the way the story unfolds as told by these white filmmakers. So I'm excited to see the 2023 adaptation and to see hopefully a lot of course correction. Another great cast. Yes. Great cast. Mm-hmm. Wonderful yeah. cast. So I'm looking forward to it. 
I'll give this 1985 adaptation three nipples. I will give one to Whoopi Goldberg. I'll give one to Oprah. And I'll give my final nipple to Margaret Avery, who plays Suge. Who at the time was kind of the only famous person in this movie, which is wild. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll beat you at three. I'm tempted to go more only because I love the performances so mm-hmm. much. But I think based on the discussion we've had, and, and I agree with what you're saying, Caitlin, like where a lot of the production dissonance uh, is connected to what an impossible situation black creatives were put into at this time and still are often put it to now mm-hmm. and th- that's how you end up with Spielberg and when you end up with Spielberg what are the consequences yep. of that and I mean we talked it through pretty considerably uh, and it feels like it makes total sense to me why there will always be new rounds of discourse about this movie good bad and different mm-hmm. and I also you know I, I think that it is a beautifully made movie. The performances are like, you can't argue with a single one of them. And also everything we just said in the last two and a half hours. So I'm going to (laughs) say three, let's go with three. I'm going to give one, two. Oh, sorry. My kitten is like hungry. And so (laughs) ruining my life. Um, I'm going to give one to Whoopi. I'm going to give one to Oprah and I'm going to give one to, oh my gosh, her name is Ray Don Chong, who plays Mary Agnes, a.k.a. Squeak, Squeaky. because she is Tommy Chong's daughter, I oh. learned. Oh. And I thought, how how fun for a nepotism. That's a fun <laughs> yeah, nepotism. That's a fun yeah, nepotism. That's a fun nepotism. Yeah. And so I will give the final nipple to her and that fun nepotism. Yeah. Ashley. Yes, I, I'm going to give it four. I'm going to give four. Uh, I agree with everything you've all said, but I think at the end of it for me, no matter what happened behind the scenes, the anger that it caused, Black women as a community took this movie and we made it our own. Like my mm-hmm. mom sees her story in this, my grandmother, my aunts. It is a language between us. Like if you see a like a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, you will do the hand clap motion in the <laughs> airport. Like it's... We embraced it. I already knew as soon as the movie was announced, the 2023 one, I was going to go see it. So Mm -hmm. despite the shortcomings, which I think within our community, we can see and address and talk to, we're able to appreciate this movie. It's why it's become such a big thing for us amongst the general public. Yes, I wish it had done a better job. But at the end of the day, you know what? Oprah's in this movie. It's for black (laughs) women. And we were happy with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm going to give it four. I will also give it to Whoopi, to Oprah. Uh, I'm going to actually give one to Danny Glover because he was so good in this role that Mm. every black woman I knew hated him for so long. (laughs) He'd be in other things and people would just be like, I can't. I can't look at his face. It's Mr. I hate him so much. Is Lethal Weapon? Uh, The one with Bruce Willis. (laughs) Die Die Hard? Hard? Is he in Die Hard? We are not sure. I don't know, but he he took a different turn in his career when he realized I cannot keep playing angry men who beat women. So respect <laughs> mm. to that. He turned it yeah. around. And then I... He is in Lethal Weapon. I Yeah, he is. Okay. I, I was like, is that a joke? Yeah. I, I was like... I have no idea. I've never, I've never seen, seen Lethal, Lethal Weapon. Weapon. So I'm just like... Well, he, and he's also most iconically in Saw. One. Oh, yes. Saw one. He and is in and Saw that's his one. most famous role. We all can agree with that. Yes. Yeah. That and... will be the lead on the obit. <laughs> Danny Glover, best remembered for Saw One. Uh, and I'm gonna give the final nipple to the song Sister because if you you should just go listen yeah. to it on its own. It's a really it's a banger. 
just mm. great song. It's so good. I feel like diegetic movie songs are rarely good. Yeah. And this one is so good. It's, it's so awesome. good. It's great. Mm. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for coming back and coming on for a <laughs> big old discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And come back anytime. Let's talk about the musical. Let's do it. What was the Ingmar Bergman movie? Persona. Oh, yeah. Persona. Persona. Yeah, I'll get you a whole list of Bar- uh, Bergman movies we can talk mm-hmm. about. Let's do it. Persona. Cries and whispers. Does someone like jam a piece of glass in their cooch? Yeah, we'll, oh. we'll, we can maybe talk about it someday. <laughs> he does not like women. Oops. He sure doesn't. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Boy, does he not. <laughs> where, where can we find where, you online? Where can people, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you can follow me at the Ashley Ray everywhere on the apps if you still do that, or listen to TV. I say with Ashley Ray, my podcast. Wherever you do that, uh, I talk about TV. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's the best. It's great. Thank you. You can find us on Instagram and sometimes Twitter still at Bechtelcast. You can also follow our Patreon, aka Matreon, at Patreon.com/slash Bechtelcast, where for five dollars a month you get. Two bonus episodes a month based around a hyper-specific theme that we choose or let you choose. You get access to 150 bonus episodes from the last six years of the Matreon. So sign wow. up for that. Wow. What a what a darn good special. What a deal. Truly. What a deal. And you can also grab our merch at tpublic.com slash the Bechtelcast. And check out our link tree, link tree slash Bechtelcast for information about some possible upcoming shows that big time we are doing big time baby yeah bye 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 the bechtel cast is a production of iHeartMedia, hosted by caitlin durante and jamie loftus produced by sophie lichterman edited by mo laborde our theme song was composed by mike kaplan with vocals by katherine voskresensky Our logo and merch is designed by Jamie Loftus, and a special thanks to Aristotle Acevedo. For more information about the podcast, please visit linktree slash Bechtelcast. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 